Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. Today, for historical context, this is 27th of August of 2021, and it's been quite a while since I've put out a podcast. Thank you for sticking along and being part of the audience here. Today, I'm going to be discussing the expectations that I try to set with the families of COVID-19 patients who are on mechanical ventilation. On the 9th of this month, uh, maybe two weeks ago or so, I've been again, I've been meaning to do this for quite a while now. I put out a tweet discussing in obviously a certain limited number of characters because there are limitations to that on Twitter, how difficult it is to get a patient who is intubated and placed on mechanical ventilation because of severe COVID-19 ARDS and like how hard it is to get them off of it. And they use the analogy of landing an airplane in a hurricane. It's definitely something that is not easy. Then something just came over me where I spontaneously hit the keyboard and started putting down some thoughts. Uh, Honestly, it was on my phone, not even on my, um, not even on my computer or anything like that. When I was reposting the tweet to my Instagram account, in that particular conversation or discussion or whatnot, I discussed the intricacies of my telephone conversations with most of the families who I try to speak with every day. You know, the families who have loved ones who are on mechanical ventilation. Overall, I must admit that I'm an optimistic guy. But there are certain realities that come into play when a patient comes to meet me. And if you're listening to this because your loved one is on mechanical ventilation, um, I'm sorry, it's it's tough. Like no, nobody else knows what you're going through except for yourself. And uh, it's it's just it's just a tough, tough, repetitive process. But nonetheless, my my team and I will work our hardest every day to save the life of every single COVID patient who we take care of. Once I went ahead and posted this on Instagram, my write-up on the expectations, it's been liked over, I don't know, 6,500 times or something like that, but it's almost reached 70,000 people. So it obviously stuck a chord. Because of this response, I decided to elaborate a bit more uh, on my website, and now I'm doing it here in the podcast, as I don't have a character limit as I do on Twitter, as well as Instagram and other mediums. Now, some might get upset at me for writing this, but somebody needs to be upfront and direct with the families of patients who are mechanical ventilation secondary to COVID-19. I'll not, I won't sugarcoat it because uh, this is a tough, tough process. Uh, one of the things I often say is to pray for the best, but prepare for the worst. I don't know how long this podcast is going to be for. Um, I might actually break up this podcast into a couple different episodes. I don't know. Let's see how it goes. The first thing I usually tell people is that mortality of COVID-19 patients who are on mechanical ventilation, and I'm not talking about high flow, I'm not talking about BiPAP, CPAP, or non-invasive ventilation. I'm talking about endotracheal tube and a ventilator. The mortality of this is way over 50%. The formal data, in other words, studies to say what the, what the prognosis is, is honestly missing. Because the reality is the way data works is that no one wants to tell their truth, the truth in a peer-reviewed paper. It might make their hospital look bad and nobody wants to admit to this. There are some big name ivory tower centers that say that their mortality is only 20 to 30%, but the reality is that we all work in the real world. It's challenging to make sense of the data overall because you know, we've all attempted different intubation strategies or timing strategies, should I mention, as to when to pull the trigger and intubate the patient. I really have to give kudos to those people in New York who published their 88% mortality at the beginning of this pandemic. During the first wave, after learning from what happened in New York, we tried 
really hard to not intubate unless it was absolutely necessary. This at times meant placing patients on non-invasive ventilation, also called BiPAP, for prolonged periods of time, which I personally was not a fan of. The reason why I was not a fan of this is because you watch these patients take monster tidal volumes and it causes something called self-induced lung injury, which isn't good for them. And this happens because their inspiratory drive is honestly through the roof. It's different than anything else we've ever seen. The other variable to these data is defining when the patient is intubated. But I digress. Despite this, I've tried different strategies. And in this current wave with younger patients uh, being currently in the Delta wave, uh, I think you know 50 to 70% uh, is a fair number, especially in light of these younger patients who are putting on mechanical ventilation, unfortunately. We've had some success, but one has to be patient. Um, I've gotten to the point where I frankly tell family members of elderly patients with multiple comorbidities such as dementia that unfortunately they will most likely not survive because it's, it's just the truth. They, they won't survive. It's just, it's just brutal on their bodies. The preventive measure for them to not end up in my ICU is out there. So I do recommend that uh, those people do what they have to do to not end up seeing, like being in my ICU because it's only a matter of time. I mean, this is going to burn through the entire population. And in all honesty, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to reprimand folks, but there's honestly no excuse unless, you know, your doctor recommends that you shouldn't do it, but there's no excuse for elderly patients to not be, uh, to not be vaccinated. And, you know, ultimately, we have to assume personal responsibility and live with the repercussions of our decision. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The second thing I discuss with families is that once their loved one is intubated, they will be on the vent for at least a week, sometimes months, should they survive. Going back to the first point of, you know, having such a high mortality on mechanical ventilation, even the healthiest patients with, even in, excuse me, the healthiest patients I've taken care of with no comorbidities, the shortest amount of time I've seen somebody on the vent from true COVID ARDS is seven days. Some people with COVID end up getting intubated for other reasons and extubated quickly, but I mean, those, and those of you who take care of COVID patients in the ICU, you, you all know the difference. The longest that I have personally cared for a patient on the ventilator and they've survived is 57 days. It just takes a really long time for their lungs to heal. I, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't stress this enough. Sometimes it happens where their lungs do heal and sometimes it doesn't. And that's, that's just really hard to define. In ARDS, which you probably heard me mention, acute respiratory distress syndrome, there's a certain variation called fibroproliferative ARDS where the lungs basically turn into scar tissue. And as one can imagine, air simply does not penetrate the scar tissue. I'm, I'm honestly oversimplifying, but I know that the audience to this podcast is going to be broad. And I'm trying to, for the sake of communication, reach the most amount of people so that they could understand what's going on with their, with their loved ones. These are the folks who unfortunately end up requiring lung transplants after meeting numerous, numerous criteria. 
But here's the unfortunate part, though. There aren't enough lungs to go around for all the people who eventually go on to need a lung transplant. It's it's just an awful situation. We can call transplant centers all we want, but the odds are ultimately not in favor of that patient. The same thing occurs for the families who have asked for uh, ECMO, which is extracorporeal membranous oxygenation. Unfortunately, there isn't enough ECMO to go around for everybody. There's also criteria that needs to be met in order to be a candidate for, for ECMO, and not every center does this. And again, it's it's just very resource and labor intensive. Just because, you know, you threaten, and, and I hate saying this, you, you threaten to call administration doesn't mean it's it's going to be feasible. I mean, there's certain criteria that need to be met. And the reality is that once somebody has been on the ventilator for about eight days, their chances of surviving ECMO are so low that most institutions won't place them on the machine. Not to mention that ECMO itself is not a benign procedure and has its own litany of complications, which I've discussed on my on my webpage before. The third thing I like to mention to families is that some of the treatments that we use for patients with COVID-19 to help halt their inflammation include high doses of steroids as well as IL-6 and interleukin inhibitors. These particular drugs and treatments come with side effects, and this makes the patients prone to dangerous secondary infections. This means that the patients will spike fevers randomly, and their white count is honestly all over the place. Data has come out that using C-reactive protein and other biomarkers is completely unreliable. So what we do is that we just culture these folks. We culture their blood, their sputum, their urine. We start them on broad-spectrum antibiotics, and then we just sit down and watch. Um, Many of them are on vent settings that are too high to even consider doing a bronchoscopy to identify what organisms causing them to be so sick, even if there is one. Then again, many patients have central lines as well as arterial lines, which are uh, basically sources of infection. And then you have to think that it's a thankless job, and this is as an aside, that the CMS uh, and the government will get mad at us for trying our best to diagnose a fungal pneumonia on somebody who was on high-dose steroids and also received tocilizumab, for example. The other thing is that fungal infections are far harder to diagnose than bacterial infections simply because of how long it takes the bugs to grow. So we start empiric therapies to cover for this, and these things not to mention being costly, but they're, they also put the patient at risk for adverse reactions. So it's it's kind of, I hate saying the phrase, but it's damned if you do, damned if you don't, because the, the patient's just completely wide open for, for infections. And even though we have protocols to try to mitigate them getting infections, it just still happens because they, they pretty much don't have an immune system. So, you know, if you keep on hearing that, oh, your, your loved one has a fever, your loved one has an elevated white blood count, trust me, we're not ignoring any of that. It's just that a lot of times there's just nothing we could do. That's just par for the course. The fourth thing I try to tell families is that a day that nothing goes wrong is a good day. Not every day is going to be a day where something good happens. And as mentioned before, it I hate saying this, but if it wasn't for our intervention, the patient would, would already be in heaven. I mean, they would have already died. I hate to say it, but it's the truth. We're, we're the ones who are in the middle trying to stop it. And, you know, it's, it's not only one person or one patient, you have to multiply this by the amount of critically ill patients we're, we're responsible for. So, and then also be aware that the vent is not harmless. The, the pressures that we need to be able to oxygenate and, and ventilate the patient can cause something called barotrauma and volutrauma, where, where we actually cause damage to the patient's lungs. But it's, <laughs> it's hard because it's, it's a very complicated 
process to not cause injury to the lung, but at the same time, get the oxygen into their lungs and get the carbon dioxide out. Then the alarms are always going off on the ventilator. Infections are always trying to invade the patient. Every medication we give has adverse effects. As I mentioned before, the immune system is not working like they should. Even the IV in the arm could get infected and could go, could cause them to go into septic shock and, and pass away. And yes, again, I reiterate, we watch out for this stuff. We have protocols for this, but nothing is 100%. Even if we're not able to crank down on the vent for a day, if that patient survives that day, that's considered a good day in our in our minds. There's no need to get disheartened if this is a one-day update. One has to remember that this is a marathon and not a sprint. And as, as I mentioned before, this is going to take a long, long time to resolve. We're honestly doing the best we can every single day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The fifth thing I like to mention to family members is that they will likely not go directly home should they survive. Honestly, they're going to be extremely, extremely weak and potentially need something called a tracheostomy and a peg tube. Since they're most likely going to need these things, one should plan on an LTAC, which is a long-term acute care hospital, a nursing home, or inpatient rehab. And if they're very lucky, they're going to go home, home with home health and home physical therapy and occupational therapy. So one has to wonder, especially in the patients who are very, very elderly, is this what the patient would have wanted? I mean, when we go ahead and intubate COVID patients and place them on mechanical ventilation, they receive very, very strong medications, sedatives, uh, things of that nature, so that they don't fight the ventilator nor try to pull the uncomfortable endotracheal tube from their throat. They also, as I mentioned before, receive steroids and, and they receive these for a prolonged period of time we could expect our patients to go ahead and develop something called critical illness polymyopathy, which leads to severe, severe weakness that takes quite a while to get better. It's not like they're going to be able to hop out of bed the day we extubate them, get in the shower and brush their teeth. We place tracheostomies when possible in patients so that they don't have the sensation of the tube in their throat choking them. This allows us the opportunity to go ahead and decrease sedation as well as work a bit harder with physical as well as occupational therapy. One also has to consider that the tracheostomy is reversible in the majority of patients. Yeah, they'll have a battle scar should they be lucky enough to survive, but you know it'll be a it'll be a cool story. The problem that occurs with COVID compared to other illnesses is that every every institution has criteria as to when a patient has a tracheostomy performed with regards to time on the ventilator as well as ventilator settings. The reason why is because this is a surgical procedure, even though it's done at the bedside a lot of times. And we need to be prepared for things to go wrong if they're requiring too much oxygen or support. Uh, if, if, they're, if it's too dangerous, you know, we always have to do a risk-benefit evaluation. If it's too dangerous, we're not going to run the risk on a surgical procedure if we're already on the downhill slope and a tracheostomy is something that we're thinking about. The other thing is that once the tracheostomy is completed, we start thinking about a long-term acute care hospital. And sometimes in some places, these aren't even available. I mean, just the amount of patients leaving the ICU with tracheostomies is, is enough to overwhelm these systems and these facilities. 
And the objective of these facilities is to have a strong focus on weaning patients from the ventilator as well as physical therapy. Again, as the patient is weak everywhere in their bodies, they'll also be weak in the muscles responsible for speaking and swallowing. This means that they'll likely need a peg tube, which is a feeding tube from the abdominal skin to the stomach. It's done percutaneously. And this is also reversible and will leave a scar to show off at the beach when they're, re- when they're wearing a Speedo or a bikini after recovery. So I'm seeing that this is about over 15 minutes now. So I'm going to stop right here and make this into a second episode because I also have to go run and do something really quick. Promise I'll be back. Stay tuned. This is probably going to be a three-parter when all is said and done. Thanks a lot for your support, guys. Bye.